Genesis may be the most important book in all of literature. If it's not the most important, it certainly is one of the most important books in all of literature. Without a proper understanding of what Genesis teaches us, we would not be able to understand ourselves, our world. We wouldn't have any clue how to understand evil, goodness, conflicts we have in relationships, marital conflicts. In fact, we wouldn't have a way to really understand properly most of what happens to us every day without a proper understanding of the book of Genesis. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. I wear contact lenses. And I went into the optometrist one day and I said, well, how bad are my eyes, really? He said, well, with that correction, you'd be legally blind. I thought, okay, I guess I'm pretty bad off. One day I was playing on a Cole softball team. We used to have a softball team here at Cole, and I was playing, and I was out in the outfield, and you know, I was a little dusty, my eyes were dry. I rubbed my eye, and I could not see out of that eye. I didn't know if I had lost it, if it had fallen out, or if it had moved to another part of my eye where I couldn't see, but I could not see well, and all I could think of is, don't hit it to me. 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 And I'm trying to fix this. I didn't know whether to call timeout or whatever. And all of a sudden, crack. The crack of the bat. And guess where the ball came? Well, it was over here a ways. And I could kind of see with my one good eye trying to figure out where the ball was. And I ran over there. And, and amazingly, I got to where the ball was. And I stuck out my mitt. And the ball caromed off my mitt and went off further into the outfield, and I had to run and get it and try to see where to throw it. Um, didn't get it very close, but at least I got it back. But my teammates were not very happy. It was the ball I should have caught. But see, what happened was I could not see because of losing my contact. Genesis provides a lens that allows us to see 2020. All humans, because of the fall, and we'll be talking about this shortly, we're legally blind. <laughs> we don't see reality well. And unless God reveals reality to us, we will not understand life or ourselves or anything else. We are legally blind. And without correction, the correction that only God can bring through his word, through books like the book of Genesis, we will be confused and lost and we will not be able to function well the way God has called us to. The reason our world is such a mixed-up place, it's a wonderful place and yet a confused, mixed-up place, is because our world has largely rejected the truths that God reveals to us in the book of Genesis. We need those truths to be able to see ourselves and see reality. So we're studying the book of Genesis so that we might get back to our roots we might get back to understanding who we are. In a culture that's rejected truth, we want to get back to truth so that we can begin to function more fully as the men and women that God wants us to be in an increasingly lost and confused world. That's why we should study the book of Genesis. That's why we're beginning in it today. So that's the value. Now to our second question. 
How does Genesis reveal the big story of God? And I think it's helpful to see the big picture of all that God's doing throughout history and before history so that we can understand how God is working even today. As I see the big story of God, the meta-narrative as some call it, the big picture, the big story of God, there are five acts in history and prehistory. There's five acts in this great drama that God is directing, this wonderful play that we are living out and we are part of, that we happen to be actors in in this particular time, in this particular place where God has placed us, yet we're just part of a bigger story, a bigger drama, a bigger theater that God is acting out. And as I understand it, there are five acts in this big story. And all five of these acts are at least hinted at, and several are explained in the book of Genesis. Without the book of Genesis, we would not understand the bigger picture the way that God wants us to. Events are unfolding, the plays being lived out, and we are part of that. But Genesis is in many ways, as the rest of the scripture is, but certainly Genesis is, the author's commentary explaining what's going on in the play. And without it, you feel lost. You'll feel confused. So act one of God's big story. I call it pre-existence. Pre-existence. Way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now you think about that. God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God was hovering. And you think, that suggests something. It suggests that God was around before creation ever happened. He was already there. You see, when God created the universe, He stepped into it and he made it and he created time, this linear time. But God existed in eternity. There's no time in eternity. So God sees the whole picture and he pre-existed creation. He was already there. And I think we need to understand that if we are to understand life and understand ourselves. He already was. Before time began, I am. God was. So what was it like in pre-existence? Well, we see here there's a hint. There's God and there's the Spirit of God. Over in chapter chapter 1 again, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God existed before creation, but he existed in multiple, right? Let us. There were at least other beings there with God. And God said, let us make man in our image. As we've seen, the Spirit of God, if that's what it means, it could be wind, but it could be the Spirit of God, was there present. The Father and the Spirit were there together. God and the Spirit were together in the beginning. So who is this? It's the Trinity, right? I mean, we understand that, and there maybe were other angelic beings. 
It doesn't say for sure in this passage, but we understand that God was not alone. There was pre-existence where God was. Later, in the book of Genesis, we see God showing up to Abraham in a physical being. Many think this is a pre-incarnate Christ himself, Jesus himself appearing. So we see a hint in Genesis that Before time began, before creation, God was and God was not alone. Father, Son, and Spirit together in preexistence. Now, this is explained more fully. Obviously, many of these truths are explained more fully in the New Testament. And I want to look briefly at John, the book of John, because you see this. The beginning of John, which is an echo of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word. John 1, 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. It's clear as John goes on, the Word is who? Christ. It's Jesus. Okay? And he says there, hey, I just want you to let you know, Jesus, the Word, was there before creation, and he was the instrument of creation, but he was there before creation, in pre-existence. And then over in John chapter 17, as Jesus prays, just before he goes to the cross, he prays for us, for you and me. Listen to verse 24 of chapter 17 of John. Father, I desire that they, praying for us, also whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For, get this last phrase, you loved me before the foundation of the world. You loved me before the foundation of the world. And if you read this whole prayer, it's amazing, but you see how Jesus prays that we might be one as the Father is one with the Son. And you see this picture of what preexistence was like. The Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship, delighting in one another, loving one another. They didn't need to create us. They had perfect relationship already, delighting in each other, caring for one another, excited about being together in perfect, loving relationship. I like the way uh, Brent Curtis says it in The Sacred Romance. He puts it this way. Think of your best moments of love or friendship or creative partnership, the best times with family or friends around the dinner table, your richest conversations, the acts of simple kindness that sometimes seem like the only things that make life worth living, like the shimmer of sunlight on a lake. These are reflections of the love that flows among the Trinity. There's a mutual delight and glorying in one another that happened in pre-existence. And I think it helps us understand the rest of the story when we understand Act 1 was the pre-existence of God delighting in one another, love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's God's pre-existence. Act 2 we see in Genesis 1-1 again. And following, in the beginning, God created. Act two is creation. Creation. The drama continues. God, in his wonderful relationship within the Trinity, says, you know what? This is too great to keep to ourselves. (laughs) We need to create beings that we can share this love with. 
And so God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit was there. And we find in the New Testament, clearly Jesus was there. He was the instrument of creation. So Father, Son, Spirit, the Trinity are all involved in creating this marvelous, beautiful creation. Now, in the next few weeks, we'll go into the details of creation, but I just want to give some big-picture thoughts about what it means that God is the Creator. Several thoughts. First of all, that God is over and above his creation. God is not part of the creation. It's something separate from him. God is over and above creation. Why is that important? Well, as some believe today, God is infused in nature. Because you go out into nature, you enjoy the wonders of creation, and you feel close to God, and so many who don't have 20-20 vision, who are legally blind, (laughs) think God is somehow infused in that, in the birds and the trees and all that nature is, and that God is somehow tied to that. And and I'll know creation is something that God did, and it's separate from himself. He is over and above creation. Secondly, God designed creation with order and beauty for us to enjoy and to explore. As you go through the creation story, you see how incredibly ordered and marvelous and beautiful it is, and you can't help but look at the magnitude and the glory uh, and the beauty of what God has given us to say, wow, God loves beauty. He loves order. He loves to create something that delights our hearts. And we need to understand from this that God created everything, therefore, Creation is not at odds with science. Creation cannot be at odds with science because God created it all. (laughs) So where creation appears to be at odds with science, it means that science is probably confused. It's constantly adapting and and you may be looking at the glories of creation and what God has made, but if your vision is not 2020, if you don't have the lenses on, you're probably going to misinterpret some of the things you're observing. So just understand that. God created the universe with order and beauty, and it can never be at odds with science. In fact, the reason we have science is because God has created the world with order and beauty for us to enjoy. It shows how God loves beauty, how he loves creativity. Again, Sacred Romance puts it this way. Stay here a moment in creation and feel God's happiness with it all. (laughs) Yosemite and Yellowstone and Maui and the Alps, mangoes and blackberries and Cabernet grapes, horses and hummingbirds and rainbow trout. As Job 38.7 says, The morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Creation. Third point I want to make about creation is, as you read through the story, as we'll discover, man, now that's inclusive, men and women, man is the high point of God's creation. The whole story suggests that. The six days of creation, the end of it, the, the end of the story is man and women, woman being created. And then there's a whole separate account in chapter 2 that explains more specifically 
the creation of men and women. It builds up to day six. It builds up to us because we are central to God's creation. We are not, as again, many people would say today, just a mass of atoms and molecules, just as much of, as a cow or a horse or any other creature or a plant, and therefore we have no value higher than that. No, we are created as the high point of God's creation, and we are created in his image. Nothing else in all creation was created in his image. We have a dignity far beyond anything else in creation. Creation is awesome, but we have a dignity beyond anything else in creation. Fourth, God created us for relationship with him and with one another. Big picture of the creation story, God in his preexistence, delighting in one another in the Trinity, said, I want to share that with beings, and, and the beings I will create to do that with are humans. So he created us for a relationship with him and with one another. And we are only fulfilled and experience the fullness of life when we are in relationship, healthy relationship with him. And then out of that, healthy relationship with one another. We are created for that. We're not created to be on our own, ultimately. We need to be in relationship with others. And then fifth, God, through Jesus, sustains all creation. And we find this out clearly in the New Testament. God, through Jesus, sustains all of creation. There's been theories out there over the years that says, well, God, yeah, God created, but he just let it go and it's doing its own thing. Like a clockmaker made a clock and he wound it up and he lets it go. No, it's clear in Scripture that God, through Jesus, sustains every atom, every molecule of creation. This is clearly stated in several places, but let me read Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where it says, For by him, speaking of Jesus, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and, listen to this phrase at the end of verse 17, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. So from the most foundational building block, the atom, the scientists have discovered there's these mysterious forces holding everything together. Yeah, there's the proton and the electron and the neutron, and, but there's even forces smaller than that. And as they go, if they could only have eyes to see, they would see that ho what holds every atom together is Jesus. From the smallest to the biggest, the universe itself, how is it held together? How do the planets rotate around the sun and every, every galaxy, every solar system throughout this entire universe, how is it all held together? It is held together by Jesus. And your body is held together and your eye functions and your lungs are breathing right now and on and on. It all is held together by the intimate contact and sustaining of Jesus. He's above creation, but he's int intimately holding it all together. He sustains it. So God's big story, there's preexistence, and then God says, I want to create 
the universe, I want to create this universe, I want to create the earth, and I want to put people on it so that they can enjoy the wonders of relationship with us and with one another because we are relational beings. Marvelous story. But unfortunately, it doesn't end there, does it? Because Act 3 came. And Act 3 is the fall. The fall. Which is descriptive of man falling from grace. Falling from a place of intimacy with God, walking in the garden. God created the Garden of Eden to rebelling against God and falling out of favor with God, falling out of relationship with God, so that every human being who is born is fallen as well. And we see this most clearly explained in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, which we'll be studying in a few weeks, where we see that Adam and Eve were told, do not eat of the tree of good and evil, of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet they ate. They chose to act independently of God. God says this, but you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. I'm not going to trust God. It looks good to eat to me. I'm going to act independently of God. And so every human being since then has been infected with the fall. So we all, every one of us, is born with a bent of independence. Independent of God wanting to run our own lives, wanting to go our own way, and experiencing the consequences of that. That is the fall. How did it happen? God created us with free will because he knew that if we were to have relationship with him, it had to be our choice. And we chose through Adam, but each of us in our own way, we are told, chose to go our own way and say, no, I'm going to run my own life. He gave us free will, and the result is we walked away from him. And we see in the Scripture very clearly how the fall broke the heart of God. He knew that we were built for relationship with him. He knew that's where life is for all of us. And yet he gave us the freedom to walk away, and when that happened, It broke his heart. He wanted relationship with us. And we walked away. How did the fall affect us then? What are the consequences in our lives? Well, there are many. It was interesting in the paper, there was a report this week came out. And the uh, heading is this. Study links gene variant in men to propensity for marital discord. Men are more likely to be devoted and loyal husbands when they lack a particular variant of a gene that influences brain activity. Men with two copies of this allele, they call it, had twice the risk of experiencing marital dysfunction with a threat of divorce during the last year compared to men carrying one or no copies. Isn't that interesting? I mean, again, it's just a they're, they're, they're seeing some kind of connection here. It's not a one-to-one correspondence, obviously. It's just saying twice as much. But it highlights for us something about what happened with the fall. The fall affected all that we are. The fall tainted everything in us, from the level of, of genes and chromosomes 
to our thinking, to the way we respond to life. Let me just see if I can illustrate this for you. Here's us. Here's creation. Beautiful and pure. Wonderful. And yet, when sin came into the world, it was like, began to infiltrate. I don't know if you can see that, but it's a drop of food coloring I put in and as you stir it in, it affects everything. All, every drop of water in this jar turned blue. It's not all black, but every drop of water is affected. Every drop of water turned blue. You see, that's what the fall did. When we chose to sin, every part of us was tainted. From the level of genes and chromosomes to our personalities, our minds, our emotions, our wills became tainted by sin. Are there wonderful things about us? Absolutely. We're created in God's image. Man is capable of great good, whether they know God or not, whether they're believers or not. Man is capable of great good being made in the image of God. But everything man does is tainted by independence and selfishness, by sin. Every part of us. And what we tend to do is depend on our minds, our emotions, our wills, and think somehow that we can function well and that they're okay and they're not tainted, but they are. We cannot trust our minds, our emotions, or our wills to function apart from God to function well. They cannot. Every part of us is tainted. We are what some have called a glorious ruin, capable of great good and yet tainted by sin. My son and daughter-in-law have been house hunting, and they've looked at a lot of different houses. They've seen all kinds of things. They've looked at apartments and so forth, and they finally found an apartment. But I was just struck by that picture of creation. It's like you're house hunting, and you look, and you see this house, and it looks okay from outside. And you walk in the door and you think, wow, this doesn't look bad. And then you start looking closer and you realize there's something wrong with everything. <laughs> the doors stick. The windows are cracked. The refrigerator doesn't run. The rack's missing in the dishwasher. There's paint peeling from the wall and you start looking closer and you go, you know, this is livable, but... There's something wrong with everything when you look more closely. And that's true of creation from the fall. It's glorious, but it's a glorious ruin. There's something wrong with everything, including every part of us because of the fall. It explains marital conflict, the fall does. It explains terrorism. It explains how kids don't have to be taught to say, mine. <laughs> it explains all selfishness and all conflict. It explains wars because we are all tainted with this independence from God. It, and it means our minds don't see clearly that left to ourselves, we are legally blind. We do not see reality well and we need God's truth and by His Spirit to help us begin to see 2020 again. 
And it means we can't trust our thinking or our emotions or our wills. Too many of us trust our emotions. We think somehow what we feel is reality and explains reality. It's not true. Our emotions are twisted by the fall as every part of us is. That's why we are capable of great good and every one of us capable of great evil because we're all sinful and separated from God. That's how the fall affected us. Well, how did the fall affect creation? Everything else God made. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, it describes verse 17 how God cursed the ground because of man's sin. And again, we'll look at this later. But he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Because of our sin, man's sin, Adam's sin, the ground was cursed. And in Romans chapter 8, this is explained even more fully where it says the entire creation was subjected to corruption. That word means like rottenness where meat begins to spoil and it begins to smell. Creation is gorgeous, it's beautiful, and yet it's subject to corruption. You see, because we made a choice to walk away from God, everything in creation was subject to corruption. This explains why there's tsunamis, why there's hurricanes, why there are earthquakes, why there are mosquitoes, <laughs> why there's AIDS, why there's disease, why there's an aging process where our bodies begin to break down and deteriorate, why there is the ugliness of death that we hate. The fall explains all that because all of creation was subject to corruption because man fell. God allowed it to happen because he gave us free will and he subjected all of creation to corruption and so that explains why when you open the fridge of life, there's something in there that stinks. That's true. The fall explains all that. It's a sad, dark story. Evil has twisted all this wonderful creation of God so that everything is twisted, every person and everything in creation. There's ugliness and violence and corruption, and God's heart is broken. It's in anguish over it. And that's why he moved on to Act 4. Act 4 of God's big story is redemption. We only see the beginnings of it in Genesis, but it's a marvelous story. Remember, in, in, and we'll look at this again in a couple weeks, in Genesis 3.15, where God curses the serpent. And he describes, let me read it for you. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. There's a hint there of redemption that though Satan had tainted everything by being the serpent and leading Adam and Eve astray, that a seed, a descendant of women would come that would crush Satan's head. This is called the proto-evangelism. This is the first hint that Jesus would be sent someday. And then over in Genesis chapter 12, we see the beginnings of the redemption story. As God calls to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country and I want you to go to a land where I am leading you and I will bless you and I will 
make you a blessing to all the nations. This is where God began the redemption story, and we see this in Genesis as God begins to work with the nation of Israel, creates a nation, begins to work with them to make out of that nation a blessing of redemption to all people forever. And God worked through that nation alone, primarily throughout history, until finally Jesus came and was sent, the seed who came to crush Satan's head. And so redemption began, Satan defeated, blessing coming to all mankind. This is the way it's put in Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of the time came, okay, at the right time, when God had planned in his redemption plan, his redemption story, at the fullness of the time when it came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see the heart of God? He so longed for us to be back in relationship with him that he was willing to die for us so that the horrors of the fall could be reversed. And so the redemption story is centered at this point in history, at the center of history where Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again so that we could be restored and adopted back into his family. And everyone who receives Jesus is adopted back in and the fall is beginning to be reversed so that we can be restored and redeemed back into relationship with him. So the redemption story goes on today. Everyone who believes in him, the fall begins to be reversed in our lives and we begin to have 2020 vision. <laughs> because the Spirit opens our eyes and we begin to be learning to worship and respond and not live independently, but live dependently on our Creator as we were created to live. At the right time, God did that for us. But here's the problem. Though the fall is being reversed in our souls, in our spirits, yet our bodies and creation are still subject to corruption, right? That part of the fall hasn't been reversed. Now, it breaks through now and then, right? Every once in a while, God will do miracles and he'll break through and show how the new heavens and the new earth are coming and that God is redeeming even the physical world to some degree. But it's not fully come yet. And that's why we're looking forward to Act 5. Act 5, which is renewal. Renewal is not just a return to the Garden of Eden. It will be far better than the Garden of Eden. It's described in... Revelation chapter 21, 22, and I encourage you to read it. It describes this new Jerusalem, this wonderful city coming out. There's no curse, no corruption. And in it, there are the trees and life and rivers and beauty. And it's a combination of city and nature. That's what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. You see, today, people, when you get people together in cities, you end up with a lot of crime and evil and difficulty, and it's just traffic and all pollution and etc. Why? Because of the fall. 
But the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the renewal when God creates the new heavens and the new earth, is that we'll be able to dwell together in community without all that. And so there's nature and there's city together in the new heavens and the new earth. And God will be in the center of it all. And we will be finally free of the effects of the fall with our new bodies living with him forever. You see, to understand our world, ourselves, disasters, terrorism, we need to understand God's big story. And to understand that, you need to understand the truths of Genesis. We are all legally blind and we need God to begin to open our eyes, to begin to give us 20-20 vision that the world around us does not have. Pre-existence, creation, the fall, redemption, renewal. This is the great drama that God is directing in our worlds. So knowing this, may we live out our part as the redeemed people of God, spreading redemption to others so that they can be redeemed as well and awaiting the return of Jesus when he will bring the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are working out your big story and that we, in this place and in this time in the 21st century, get to be part of it. Open our eyes to your truth and help us live it out in a world that's confused and lost where everything is blurry. May you give us 20-20 vision and may you give us hearts that are depending on you so that your life, your redemption can spread from us to this darkened, lost, confused world. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.